So, Catherine, welcome. Hi. Hi. Are you in Philadelphia this week? No, I'm in Oakland, where I live. You're originally from Jersey, though, right? No, so I'm from Houston, and then I have some family that's in New Jersey because my mother is from New Jersey. I had family from Jersey, and now I live in Jersey. But I hope to rectify that in the next few months. You intend for more family to move to Jersey, or no. you intend to leave Jersey? <laughs> we're, we're moving back to Pennsylvania, hopefully. Okay. So rectify means uh, fix, right? Yes. So What's before, wrong with New Jersey? Yeah, before it used to be like, come to Cherry Hill. Oh, well, of course. If I, I wanted to Jersey. suck everybody else into my... <laughs> my whole now jersey's fine taxes are high uh chris christie's kind of an asshole no i i grew up in pennsylvania my wife did too and just want to move back there you know plus it'll be super easy for us to be closer to our daughter's grandparents it is my birthday sorry it's kind of it's kind of loud in here so i keep muting myself but it's it's my birthday uh i probably I, I won't say how old i am on the podcast but between 20 and 40 yeah somewhere between there <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and we went to a new restaurant and it was really, really good. Vegan restaurant? It was. So there's a new, uh, Latin themed vegan restaurant on 18th street. Oh, cool. So it just opened today. So now me and the restaurant have the same birthday. <laughs> Catherine, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what kinds of things do you want to hear about me? <laughs> uh, whatever you want to share. Uh, you can say what you're into or... What you what you've been learning lately and what you're interested in? KF, what do you do? <laughs> oh, what do I do? I so right now I work at Comcast as a software engineer doing distributed systems and functional programming stuff. And I also in my spare time do a bunch of functional programming stuff, most of which is associated with Closure Bridge, which is sort of like teaching free beginner friendly workshops for women in Closure. So oh, awesome. Yeah. You might be biased as a functional programmer, but do you find uh, closure easier for beginners to grasp than, I guess, an imperative language? Or So when I first started learning programming, the first language that I really did any sort of significant project in was Scala. So Scala is my first language. And from that perspective, I find it a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's sort of, I don't know that learning functional programming is easier or harder than learning imperative programming. I think it's more just sort of different than anything else. Uh, and possibly it's the case that just because fewer people do functional programming in industry and sort of do it beyond like in college, it seems like a lot of people will like learn functional programming in college and then not really do it for work or for personal reasons after college. And because of that, I think there's like fewer resources potentially for like learning how to do functional programming as a beginner. But I, I don't think that's like inherent in functional programming or closure or anything like that. I think it's more just like the nature of how those tools get used just means that there aren't as many resources available. So so people coming into Closure Bridge, are they new to programming or just new to functional programming? Uh, it depends on the workshop. So some of the workshops are done like assuming that you don't know anything about programming at all, potentially. And some of the workshops are specifically geared more towards people who have like the equivalent of going through a hacker boot camp or something like that. Um, which was, I know definitely the one that I helped out with in Austin was like that, where everyone basically had gone through something like a coding bootcamp where they were learning to program while they were on the job or something along those lines. So they had usually like almost like the equivalent of a year of experience or something before they came into it. So it just depends on which one you attend and what the organizers really want to target depending on the city they live in. So you said Scala was your first language? Yeah. <laughs> also closure. Let's 
did you or your lack of knowledge of the JVM was it a hindrance? Because I didn't know a lot of Java stuff before I went to Closure, and some of the like setting up or errors stuff was hard for me to uh, figure out. Um, even with Scala, the tooling. You're saying not knowing Java and then learning Java. Yeah, or not knowing Scala or Clojure. Is that difficult? Or did you encounter that at all? Yeah, when I, so the context I started learning Scala in was I was at Hackwrite and the first half of Hackwrite, they basically take you through like a five week Python curriculum. And then the second half, everyone in the class sort of splits off and does their own personal project. So when I started splitting off to do my personal project, one of my mentors worked at Twitter, so she introduced me to a bunch of Scala people, and that's how I started doing Scala, was because I knew a bunch of Scala developers. And But I was doing it in the context of Hackwrite, so none of the instructors knew Scala, and none of the other students really knew Scala, and most people around me on a daily basis did not do functional programming. So it was very much like me like going through reading the docs and reading source code, just because... Like two years ago, if you were, it was also like right around the time where it was between like Scala 2.9 and 2.10. So there was a big shift in terms of like the actor libraries that people were using around then. And I was trying to like pick up ACA at the same time for my project, which made it really hard. There wasn't like much, there wasn't really anything written assuming you didn't know Java two years ago. It was sort of... Like, people just sort of assume that if you were learning Scala, you were learning it because you knew Java already and you wanted to pick up Scala. Or you knew Haskell and you also maybe knew Java by that point. And so it was, like, I remember specifically trying to pick up books and then getting through parts of them and then just, like, being completely lost after a certain point because people were referencing things related to the JVM. And at that point, it's sort of just, like, like, like no amount of reading that book would help me. I had to just, like, go try. I to do things. I remember I was, I started out trying to use IntelliJ or no, I started out using Eclipse because that was what, um, they used for the Odersky class on Coursera. And then like that was just like, I got a whole host of problems with that because again, it was like between the switch of like 2.9 to 2.10. So there were a bunch of like weird, like library resolution problems I was having. And I couldn't figure out like what any of the error messages meant because they were all related to Java. So I just sort of like chucked like the IDE completely and then started using Sublime, which is like what I've been using since then, which at this point, it's sort of like, I have enough context that I could use an IDE and just sort of like don't because I haven't been using one historically. So, so your solution was just to like brute force it and ask people. Basically. basically. <laughs> it was sort of like there's there wasn't anything written down at that point in time that would I mean now there's at least um like if you're relatively new to programming and you're trying to pick up Scala. I know there's a book called Atomic Scala, which I haven't really read. I've like skimmed it and it seems like an okay resource to start with. And then um, there's also a book called Learning Scala that's from O'Reilly that you can now buy. That Like I've read that one and that one doesn't assume much of any JVM knowledge. It assumes that you like know programming to a certain extent, like you've done Python or something potentially, but it doesn't assume that you have a bunch of JVM knowledge already. So you could feasibly start with those now, but before it was very like your only solution was really just to like brute force it as you said so scala or closure which one do you <laughs> if they were if scala and closure were represented by two different animals what would they be that's a, that's a better question i guess yeah. <laughs> or, 
that's we can do O'Reilly's work now. I sort of so I don't really know like what they would be in terms of animals. I know so my friend Rob recently gave a talk that was on like it was called like the Python Bike Shed or something. It was from Pi Data Seattle, and he had these like examples of like different Python libraries and what they would be if they were bikes. And and so I feel like if if like Scala and Clojure were bikes, then Clojure would be like a fixie or something, and Scala would be this like giant surrey with like many gears i don't <laughs> where like it will get you where you're going and it, will it would be, be like a steel frame bicycle yeah it would be so, like, just this like beast that will like barrel you down the sidewalk is what i'm describing i think with scala i i think scala just has like a lot of tooling maybe i guess it would be like an octopus if it were an animal it has many arms but also <laughs> <laughs> those arms the more arms you have the more likely it is that you will break an arm <laughs> So these are options. <laughs> so why did you pick Scala to learn then? Uh, it was mostly, I mean, so for context, I had been coding for, I'd been learning to code for like five weeks when I picked Scala. So I didn't have a super amount of context at the time. It was mostly just like people were like, you seem like you would enjoy functional programming. And those people like had many more years of experience than I did. So I sort of went looking into functional programming and then I just like happened, there just happened to be a lot of Scala developers around at the time. And so that's sort of how I ended up doing Scala. And it was also like a pretty good choice just because it was getting picked up in industry a lot at the time and sort of still is. It's like on that path towards, I don't so really know. But... What are the qualities of a person that seems Well, so I had actually just gotten out of, so I came to Hackbright because I was in grad school for math and I wanted to come to the Bay Area to pick up coding. And I was intending to go back to Texas after the summer and then potentially like go study applied math or something. So I think the attitude was like, I had a math degree and I really enjoyed doing math and I really liked reading papers. Which I, I like the Scala developers that my mentor knew were all again, like at Twitter and they were working on like data infrastructure and stuff. So they're very much like, let's talk about monads, like those kinds of people, which I am also one of those people, or at least I was like two years ago. It was very much a thing that I was interested in. So it was, it was not like, it was not like a hard jump to like make it over there. I, I remember my first Scala meetup that I went to. It was all like data processing stuff in Scala. And so there was a lot of like abstract algebra and stuff involved. And like it was actually like more approachable to me than a lot of the stuff, like a lot of the meetups that are around like building Django apps or something because I they were like referencing abstractions that I was already familiar with. So it's hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. So you're using Akka for your Hackbright project? What, what was the project? Oh, so my Hackbright project was... I was interested in doing Scala and distributed systems, so I basically just like read the Dynamo paper and then started implementing things from it, which I don't, <laughs> there wasn't, there's not like a point with that project at which you're like, I have completed this, I have been successful. It was more sort of like, I wanted a problem. I wanted to like have some excuse to be using some of these tools and that seemed like a good enough excuse to do it, so. That's actually, that, I, I'm not sure if you've been asked before. So you, so you were on the Cognitech podcast last week. So I don't want us to just do a, the Cognitech podcast, a sequel. Um, but yeah, if people want to check it out, uh, there, there, we can drop a link to the other episode in the show notes. But, um, so because you, you're interested in all this functional programming stuff and you, you saw that people were doing different stuff, but you were 
being different than them. And then you went and started working in that field, uh, like in that area of your interest. And I feel like that there's a lot of people who are interested in functional programming and thinking about, you know, like moving into that space, but they don't really know how. And so have you, have you like expressed your, your how to other people? Not really. I haven't so far. I, so my thing about how I did it was mostly just I said that I was going to do it and I committed to doing it like basically at all costs, <laughs> which is not like reasonable per se. I mean, like definitely when I started So like out, a healthy amount of determination was yes, involved of was, like this is this is what is going to happen and I will I will wait for other up like for the opportunity that allows me to do this. Yes, that was basically what happened. I mean, how I ended up doing freelancing my first year was just I kept looking for jobs. And at the time, so now if you wanted to do Scala, you could go out and you could find something like doing web application development in Scala. But like when I came out of Hackbright, that was less common. Like it was like, it was a thing people did. It just wasn't like a, like a normal thing people did. So when I was looking for Scala jobs, most of the things that were coming up were either like infrastructure jobs or they were like data engineering jobs. And generally speaking, people tend to see those as being like specialized skill sets. So you would like do backend engineering for some number of years and then eventually go into those. And I decided that I didn't want to do that. And so I was just going to take contract jobs doing like infrastructure and, and data engineering stuff. And then eventually after a year, it was just like what I did and people like understood that it was what I did and I could go out and get a full-time job doing that. Did you have any bad experiences freelancing or is it? I don't know that I had bad experiences freelancing, mostly because like... I guess with contracts, I think, did you know to take a certain... I guess for bigger companies, it's different. Yeah, I so I was working for like smaller companies in the Bay Area. I think the largest company I worked for was maybe like... 100 people with like a dev team of like 25 so it was I never really had bad experiences contracting it was more especially because it was like my first year programming and also it was you know I, I had just like come out of grad school so it was also my first year of like like career type work like I'd had jobs before but I hadn't had almost sort of like 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 freelancing jobs but in industry where most people are sort of like software engineers as a career track like that was never really a thing that I had done before so it was a lot of like simultaneously trying to figure out the workplace while also figuring out coding while also figuring out freelancing like <laughs> and I think from that perspective I guess I had a bad time doing it it's not necessarily that I would like I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't like recommend wholeheartedly that you like if you are just coming out of school and you're really focused on wanting to do one thing, like go the freelancing route because there's a lot of overhead to it. And there's also like you have to have a network to a certain extent in order to make that work. And that's not always feasible. Like definitely if I were in Texas, I probably wouldn't have been able to do the things that I did just because like I'm in the Bay Area and there's a bunch of companies everywhere and they're all looking to like get certain things done and most of them are willing to hire contractors to do it. So I don't know that I had like bad experiences with contracting or with freelancing so much as I just was like, it was my first year and I had to learn a lot. And especially well, if you're... Free I think yeah. you put it really well too in how you, you know, when you're a freelancer, you're really running the business of, yeah. you know, sharing your skills with other people. And that if you, you wanted to focus more, I mean, correct me, but it seems like you, because you want like one more space, just focus on working on the code and getting really good at that. Yeah, it's really hard to do that. You can always go you're... back to freelancing. Yeah, definitely. And and the thing about freelancing is if it's your first year, the upside is that 
or at least if you're in the Bay Area specifically. The upside is that there are a lot of companies doing a lot of different things. And really, like, the only thing most of the time getting in the way of you getting work using a certain tool is just, like, you need to teach yourself the basics of how to use it. That way you can sort of sell people on your ability to complete a project. And the thing is, though, that, like, you are never at any point paid to learn that tool. Like, that's something you have to do in your spare time. And there's a lot of, like overhead and upfront cost in doing that it's not like when you get a full-time job and like potentially i know at least like on my team we have the notion of something along the lines of like 20 percent time and a lot of the people i know have this notion where like people understand that you need to invest in like learning new skills so they sort of budget that into the time that you're spending but with freelancing there's not really explicitly that budget you have to sort of in order to get started, you have to teach yourself a bunch of things first. And that can be really hard to do depending on what your life situation is like. So you've had many years of math education. Um, is there like a condensed, are there certain books that someone could buy that not could get you to that point, but just uh, to the point of understanding uh, some of the concepts um, in the papers and like functional programming and stuff? So my thing is that I'm not entirely sure. Like, <laughs> so I don't, like, the route that I took into doing functional programming just happened to be, like, I had a math degree and so I did it. But I also, like, I genuinely don't think that, like, having a strong math background is necessary to do functional programming. Like, I... I'm more inclined to sort of like give people introductory texts on like languages they're interested in learning and then sort of having them pick up math as you go. Because I don't think that it's like inherently necessary in learning to do functional programming. I think like knowing certain things potentially about like category theory doesn't really become useful until you start dealing with like really big problems and you start needing abstractions like that to work over them. And at that point, like, Generally speaking, you'll have so much context already because you'll have worked through all those smaller problems already that you can sort of like tell what information you need to know. And I don't know, like a lot of the people I know who do functional programming, like honestly do have backgrounds in math and everything, but I don't think it's like necessarily like you don't need that to do it. Or at least I haven't found that to be the case. I think I think we're like having sort of a basic knowledge of category or theory or something along those lines is useful as if you're doing like Scala or Haskell or something strongly typed. But like if you're doing lists, like I don't think you need any math background at all, really, just because like you're not going to come across like assumptions in documentation or anything in my experience that would expect you to have that. And people are genuinely like really glad to explain things to you. So if you were to describe what a little bit of category theory consists of, KF. <laughs> What would that be? <laughs> I don't think I can, to be honest with you. Mostly because, like, so so I just sort of, like, went and did a math degree. And it wasn't, like, for any real purpose. Like, I intended to KF, that's, yeah. I know that you're being, like, oh, whatever, I got a math degree. But you did get a math degree. <laughs> no, I know. I did get a math degree. So I, so I will say, like, the context on the math degree was almost sort of, like, I, so I originally went to school for English education because I wanted to be a high school English teacher. And then when I was in the classroom, I ended up tutoring students in math and people were like, you're really good at teaching math. So you should be a math teacher. And I, w I graduated really early. So I was like probably 17 at the time when this was happening. So I finished up my math or I finished up my literature degree and then just like immediately went back and did a math degree right after. And it was almost like I, 
like I did my math degree in like a year, year and a half, and it was like part time. And I, <laughs> I was basically taking the classes just like on the side. So it almost feels like like I did take the classes and I have a math degree, but I also am like not one of those people who like went to school for four years and was heads down about it and did like undergraduate research and stuff. I know a lot of the people who have math backgrounds that I've met in the Bay Area specifically who do functional programming. Like they were very much like like they were STEM majors in college. And for me, even though I have a STEM degree, I was never like, that was never like a defining feature of my personhood at any point. And I didn't even really consider myself to be like a math major until I moved to the Bay Area and people saw the math degree and then sort of were like, oh, like you are technical because you have this degree, which sounds like kind of a weird thing to say potentially. Cause I know like going and getting a math degree is a really big deal for most people. And for me, it was almost sort of like I got into it via sort of like rhetoric of science. So one of my professors was doing research in literature or in literature and science, which is sort of like this like field of research unto its own. And that's how I got interested in math was I started like reading proofs and then I was like reading proofs and then was like, I might as well take a math class or two. And then eventually they were just sort of like, you have taken so many math classes, we will give you a degree. And, <laughs> and then so it was. So. So what's Oakland like? <laughs> it's very sunny. <laughs> Last week we had a heat wave, so I I was sort of like fleeing my apartment at like 8 a.m. every day. What is the heat wave in Oakland? Uh, like 90s. 90s? But I mean, so, I mean, I guess it's like in Philadelphia where most places don't have air conditioning. So when it hits the 90s, like it That's is genuinely... That's not true Philadelphia at all. <laughs> what do you mean? I've heard... The places I go have air conditioning. <laughs> I, I live so... in an air conditioned bubble. <laughs> okay, so I'm thinking of like... West Philly. I... So I'm thinking of like when when like May was around and it was like the end of the school year, I remembered hearing like school shutting down because they didn't have air conditioning and it was really hot. Oh, well, that's public schools, though. Exactly. But that's what I'm talking that's about. It's like most people. Uh... <laughs> so like in Oakland, it's the same thing. Like they don't really have AC in most places. So like my apartment, my entire apartment complex was just like completely hot and it was just like that all day and it was kind of insufferable. So I just like fled to go find air conditioning every morning. <laughs> How did you convince Comcast for you to be remote? Were you working? Uh, it wasn't. Or sorry, what was the question? Can you repeat the rest of it? <laughs> uh, were you working on the West Coast email first? Uh... Oh, so I, so there wasn't like a point at which I convinced Comcast to hire me remotely. Um, I met my VP, John, on Twitter. So uh, some of the people I work with now had been working on this like distributed systems library. And inside of it was a Paxos implementation in Scala. And a friend of mine, so people tend to like approach me and ask, like, do you have resources, like, related to this specific distributed systems thing? Um, like, knowing that they came from a coding boot camp or something. Like, do you know of any resources that would help me in this situation? So someone specifically asked me for an implementation of Paxos in Scala that was, like, relatively readable. And I was like, here is one. And then I sort of CC'd John on the tweet and then... Uh, John was like, you should come work with us. And I was like, I'm not moving to Philadelphia. And then they were like, you could work remotely and that would be fine. So okay. there was actually no convincing at any point. <laughs> well, you convinced him with the implementation. This person's so smart. You just need her on my team. So you're the only remote person on your team, right? 
Uh, I'm not anymore. So the first like 10 months or so, I was the only remote person. And recently, uh, Sean Cribbs, who previously was, uh, I think he was like the team lead on the data types team at Basho for React. Um, he, I guess in like May or so, like joined our team. So he is remote from somewhere in, I think, Illinois vaguely. <laughs> that, that, that's also known as Chicago. <laughs> well, no, he's not in Chicago. He's definitely oh, well, not in Chicago. Yeah, but I guess I think it's like the functional difference of like it's like an hour or something. Like he flies into Chicago. Yeah, yeah. As far as I know, Chicago-ish. Yes. Yeah, just like Justin is Philadelphia-ish, right? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, how do you like working remotely? It's it's been interesting as like my first year of like full time employee employment. Um, when I was a contractor, I occasionally did like a couple weeks of at a time remote, but it's like very 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 different when you're remote for like months at a time or like at this point we're reaching like a year I've been there so it's it's been really interesting mostly because there's like the time shift so. Like, the other remote person on my team is, like, one hour behind. And it turns out that, like, the three-hour time difference is pretty significant. <laughs> Just in terms of, like, like the thing I'm specifically thinking of is, like, lunch. Because there's, like, like when I come online is approximately when people are taking lunch. And then, like, a few hours after that, I have to go take lunch. So it's this sort of, like, weird way of chopping apart the day, I feel like. But otherwise, it's, I mean... That sort of it. I know, like, when I wake up in the morning, I spend probably, like, 15 minutes or so just, like, scrolling through and, like, you know, all the Slack messages and catching up on emails, which I think I don't... I Before I used to do that sort of, like, around lunchtime, I would catch up on emails, I guess. But now it's, like, a thing that I have to do explicitly at the beginning of my day just to catch up on what people have been doing, so... Yeah, I've been feeling that too. Like what, what you said with the lunches, I mean, when you consider the three-hour time difference and then your lunch and their lunch, you really only have like three hours of overlap. Yeah, and I it's, it's one of those things where sort of no matter how you slice it, it becomes like it is ever-present. <laughs> uh, like the only time I've been able to sort of avoid that happening is if I come online like right after they get back from lunch and then I sort of don't take my lunch until like 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon because by then everyone else is offline. I sort of like wrapped up what I was thinking about while they were online and then I can go leave and then finish up the day with another like two or three hours when I get back, mm. which is which is sort of like a weird schedule to keep, but I don't know. It's like an option. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been, uh, I don't know if this is a good habit or not, but I've been like checking into Slack as soon as I wake up, like I literally roll out of bed and, and check my computer just to, just to keep up, even though I didn't really start the day yet. Yeah. I, so I, I try really hard not to do it. <laughs> like, like I do it, but I try really hard not to just because I think when you're working remotely and you're working from home a lot of the time, especially it's really, really easy to just like have like work slack on your phone and like work slack on like your laptop and just have like like your desk is in the living room where like i remember so the guy whose room i took over when i moved into this apartment he was working from home but like from his bedroom so his desk was in his bedroom so he <laughs> potentially would be spending like just like more than 24 hours at a time just like in his bedroom and like in the bathroom and stuff. which I, I i feel like i need to try to keep like very clear boundaries so I have my work laptop, which, you know, even if I go into the city, I take two laptops with me, which seems like overkill to people. But like one, there's the idea that, you know, I do like nonprofit type stuff in my spare time and I don't want to have that on my work laptop for like sort of copyright reasons. But also I just like 
I, I want to have like the mental separation between my work and personal life. And because there's no way to sort of abstract work into an office environment, I just like, I do not want like my work laptop, like in my bed with me or on my nightstand or like anywhere near my personal things. <laughs> I see a lot of tweets from you about co-working spaces. I do. I tweet a lot about co-working spaces in part because I tweet a lot in general. Do you have a favorite co-working space? Uh, it depends on the day. So I, I don't have a membership at like any one specific place. I basically like do daily things at co-working spaces depending on what my plans are. So, uh, if I'm, so sometimes I'll be planning to only like be in the city for an afternoon and then there's a co-working space that I met Justin at one time that's in the financial district. Oh that's yeah. Like, yes. It's called Workshop Cafe and it's not really like a co-working space so much as it's just like a, giant sort of like floor full of desks that you can pay two dollars an hour to rent and they are also a cafe so they have coffee and food and stuff that you can order and they'll bring it to your desk for you uh and i go there sometimes if i'm just going to be there for like a few hours or if i'm going to be there just for the morning um a lot of the time i'll go into the city just to like get lunch with people because i don't have like co-workers that i get lunch with on like a daily basis or anything like that so I will go crash other people's offices and get lunch. Like I will steal their catered food and make it my own. So in those situations, <laughs> if I'm if I'm like working from home and their office is along the part line, I'll go to like workshop. And then there's also there's like a next space is also near the Montgomery Bar stop in the financial district. But that one I tend to go to if I'm like if I know I'm going to be in the city the entire day. And it's the same thing. There's like another co-working space that's somewhere near the Twitter building that I occasionally go work out of. And those are like the three that I usually go to just because it, like if I'm getting lunch or something with people, then I'll just go work for the day from wherever, like from some place near where we are getting lunch, basically. Can you talk about what you're working on? Or is that Not really. <laughs> is it in Scala? Uh, yeah, it is in Scala. Scala distributed systems at Comcast. Yeah. Hmm. So when you're not uh, functional programming in and out of work, what else do you like to do? Uh, I mean, that's most of what my programming is. I do, uh. like, I have hobbies. I have a bike. Oh, cool. <laughs> I go to movies. What kind of bike do you have? Uh, it is, it is, like, a very large pink cruiser made by, like, worksmen. Is that the one with the white handlebars? Just yes. That's very yes. Oakland-like, isn't it? It is quite <laughs> Oakland-like. <laughs> Although the bike itself was, like, made in New York, so. Do you have a bike when you're in Philly? I don't. There's a bike share, Indy, Indigo. Yes, we have one of those in San Francisco also. Oh. I feel like my main sort of hesitance in using them is just that, like, I wouldn't have my helmet with me. And uh. biking, and so usually I stay near the Comcast office, like, my hotel is near there. And biking on narrow city streets without a helmet seems terrifying to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It is. <laughs> yeah, I, so uh, I just skirt by it. I bought clipless pedals over the weekend. How's that been? Uh... I practiced a lot. Uh, so it was my first time riding with them. I've always been scared of them, uh, just falling. And I had to ride home without a helmet in Clipless Palace. I clipped one foot in and the other foot was loose. It was difficult. And then yesterday I went on a longer ride and I constantly had to clip out or take my uh, shoes out at light. It was, I don't like it in the city. But once I got to like the bike path, it was fun. Yeah, not good. In the city is like driving stick a city. Yeah, um, I... I live in like downtown Oakland, so it's 
it's so riding my bike in San Francisco proper is is like really terrifying to me in most situations just because like the streets are pretty narrow and there's like there are a lot of hills which there's like there's a concern of like oh you're shifting gears but that's like not actually what concerns me what concerns me is that like there's less visibility potentially like if you're going up a hill and someone's like turning left to go down a hill like there's the potential for them crashing into you a lot or it feels like that way to me so I get really nervous about it and in Oakland it's like relatively flat there we don't really have like big hills around sort of like downtown Oakland or West Oakland or even like East Oakland until you get far enough out so and the streets are like pretty wide the traffic isn't so bad unless you're like going in the middle of rush hour um so it feels like not terrifying to me <laughs> and i appreciate that aspect of it i think oakland has like relatively ri- like wide streets they like remind me of the streets that i had back in houston so what papers are you currently reading oh uh, there was i'm not in the middle of reading one right now there was one that i just like saw on twitter and it was something that Peter Bayliss and Neil Conway were talking about. Oh, it's Algebraic Topology and Distributed Computing, a Primer that I really want to read next by Maurice Herlihy. I don't actually know how to say his name. Oh, names. They're so hard to spell. But that's like the name of the papers. Algebraic Topology and a Distributed Computing, a Primer. And then there's a textbook also that I really want to order that's Distributed Computing through Combinatorial Topology, which seemed like the type of thing that I would enjoy potentially. <laughs> so I think that's like the next one that is on my list. It's maybe a really dumb question uh, that I'm, I'm going to say anyway. Do you feel on yourself like using all these things? I'm, obviously, as a distributed systems engineer, you are probably working on these things at your day job. But is this more just like a personal interest or do you find yourself applying these papers and things at work? Because like, so for me, I work on web services and uh, things of that nature and don't end up like using many things beyond, uh, you know, basic programming, I suppose. Um, But your answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's sort of like there is a very small subset of papers that are actually like directly relevant to stuff that I work on. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time reading papers, though, is super, super useful just because they are what the distributed systems like libraries and frameworks that I'm using were sort of based on. Mm -hmm. So it gives you a better insight into the tools you're using. It doesn't necessarily mean like I'm not going to go like implement these algorithms from scratch, mostly because most of the time they've been implemented already and people have used them in production for a while and it would be silly to just like re-implement things and then sort of like try to go through that entire process again on your own. Um, but I think it's like useful in terms of understanding the way that the tools you're using work. And in that sense, like I find the papers really useful at work. So what's an example of that? Like what's a paper you might have read that gave you insight to distributed systems? Uh, I'm trying to, there was one that was on bimodal multicast, which, um, there's a talk from Papers We Love here in San Francisco that, uh, Bruce Spang talked about it also because he was, I think he implemented it and then used it for Fastly when he was working there. But like, that was really useful for me, especially because eventually, um, there's sort of another kind of similar, like, protocol and paper on a thing called Plumtree that became relevant recently because, um, some of the folks at Helium were using it and some of the folks from Helium came from Basho and Basho made React. So it sort of gave insight into the way that they built React to a certain extent, if that makes sense. What's your definition of distributed, uh, systems? Uh, 
a distributed problem is a problem that is too large to solve with one machine, whatever that means. Cool. Yeah. Had a really good question. I'm drawing a blank now. <laughs> well, I was. I didn't know how deep we wanted to get, but you said bimodal multicast, and I got terrified. I have no idea what any of those words mean. Yeah, it's 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 the kind of thing that, to be honest, I don't know that I could explain it on a podcast. <laughs> someone someone recently asked me to explain that succinctly, and I was like, I don't know that I can do it. Like, I need to like go through the presentation with you. I think the like the papers we love presentation is like forty minutes long, and it's like not like it's. It's a pretty good like overview of the paper, but also doesn't go terribly deep either. So it's I think a lot of the stuff in distributed systems, it's one of those things where like you have to sort of like brace yourself for really long conversations. Is <laughs> the thing that I've learned over like the past few years. Is there things where people will just sort of throw words around and like, like I will what if you carry a pocket whiteboard? <laughs> I I mean that that distribution. I <laughs> It's, I think a lot of the things, when I was learning like functional programming and distributed systems and still now, like I'll, someone will use a word and you'll sort of stop them to explain the word. And then it turns out that explaining the word, like there's this huge amount of context that's behind it. And it's almost like you need to sit down and like have this like 40 minute discussion about it, which is, which is sort of, I, I don't really know how to explain a lot of things succinctly at this point about like stuff that I read and stuff that I like work on almost because like, I know a lot of my friends are data engineers and they like as part of their job, like naturally like distributed systems comes up, but they're working on like a different set of problems than I am. And so, you know, specifically someone asked me like about bimodal multicast like like less than a week ago. And I was sort of like, oh, have you heard of and then listed off a bunch of things and they hadn't. And then we were just sort of like, oh, I guess we'll like continue this discussion in two weeks. <laughs> like there's it's almost sort of like the problem sets specifically that you're working on define a lot of the stuff that you're that you're using for context to explain things and I think especially when I started coding I found that really problematic because I didn't have like much of any context and how I tried to make up for that was just by reading a bunch of papers and I like there's like Chris Micklejohn has like that long list of papers that's like readings and distributed systems and I know like there's since then Henry Robinson I think at Cloudera has like his own list that he's gone through that's more like industry focused which i think is which would have been like really really good for me but it's it has it very much just been this case of like i i don't have the context to understand like what you're explaining to me and then sort of like pressing pause and then going through and trying to find some more of that context and then returning to the conversation later which like there have been a lot of times especially going to meetups and stuff where you can't like explicitly do that. Like you're in the middle of a conversation and someone starts talking about something that you have no experience with. Especially, I have this one friend who does a lot of work with Elasticsearch <laughs> and he knows like the innards of Elasticsearch in a way that like I hope to never know them. Um, but he'll he'll sort of be talking about these problems that he's been encountering and I, I just, you know, like I just don't know. And it's one of those things almost where I sort of accept that there are certain things I don't know and probably won't know until I work on them in industry because a lot of distributed systems, I know Julie Evans was tweeting about this a while ago, like in the past week was like learning distributed systems is really hard to do if it's not part of your job. Like it just is because most of the problems that you hit in terms of like building and running distributed systems, you can't replicate those on your own. You really have to like be in a production environment to do it. And the only way to do that kind of work is almost like if you are in academia or if you're in industry. Um, although I know like Kelly Summers, her blog is really amazing and 
she did most of that, I think, like, in her spare time, like, using her own resources, which is, like, makes it all the more impressive. I remember my question. Uh, <laughs> lots of talk about Scala and closure and distributed systems, but no airline, no interest, or just... Oh, so... Into... It hasn't, like, the opportunity to learn Erlang has never really presented itself at all. Um, I, I know, especially because, like, Sean recently joined the team, um, and he is, like, the Erlang guy. Like, he speaks at Erlang conferences, and he worked on React, and, like, React is written in Erlang, and, and there's a lot of Erlang floating around. It's more just, like, generally speaking, I think whenever I've walked into companies and they're interested in doing functional programming, Scala is like the most approachable language for them to be using just because it like runs on the JVM and it's sort of a hybrid like functional and imperative language. So if you don't really understand the functional stuff, you can write your code in an imperative style temporarily and like it will work and it will work pretty well. And you know, like eventually you can go back and refactor it as you like learn things. Um, so I, I haven't really run into like that many opportunities to use Erlang, especially because I think it's it's really useful in like certain distributed systems problems. But if you're talking about um, like like it's really useful if you're doing like routing problems or something like that. But if you're doing like like data processing problems, which tended to be like a lot of like a lot of the people that I knew when I first started coding and as a result like some of the contracts I was taking on were more along those lines like it wouldn't really make sense to use Erlang in most of those situations like the tools that you would be using are often like Spark or Storm or something along those lines and those are just like not written in Erlang and there's not really that much support for doing things with Erlang like in conjunction with those things so you just wouldn't run into them as frequently. Uh, are you guys ready for picks? Yeah. Uh, cool. Catherine do you have a pick? Yeah, so I wanted to mention a conference that's happening on October 2nd and 3rd in Seattle, which is Open Source and Feelings. Uh, <laughs> it's a conference that's about like the intersection of both like the technical parts of open source and also the humanity of open source. So talking about like writing, community building, and diversity in open source. And it's really delightful. And um, one of the people who are organizing it was my old roommate, and he's been talking about it for years now. So I'm really happy that it's like finally emerging as a conference. <laughs> oh, nice. I'll be uh, yeah. walking to that. That's really cool. I, I'm really sad that I don't get to go because I'm going to Strange Loop like the week before. Oh, you're not. And I'm like, yeah, so I don't get to go. But I was like, it is a thing that I would emphatically be going to if only it were like a week or two later, probably. I was going to go to ElixirConf, but then I procrastinated and plane tickets <laughs> went up like 200 bucks and I figured it wasn't yeah. worth it anymore. Especially yeah. when I can walk to open source and feelings. It looks like a really, really good conference. Like I am like genuinely really upset that I'm not going and just keep looking at the speakers list and being like, why? Uh, cool. Justin, do you have a pick? Uh, sure. Um, I've been really busy at work and life past week. So my pick is this uh, really brainless iPhone game called Adventure Capitalist. And I just learned about these, uh, this game uh, genre recently called Clickers or Tappers. So they came from like Flash games, I guess, and, and Steam games where you just click something and a number goes up and you keep clicking it and it goes higher and higher. And then you can spend your points to make them go up higher and faster, <laughs> the, the numbers. Uh, so there's one for iPhone called Venture Capitalist. So you start off with a lemonade stand and you tap it and then you make a sale and you earn like a few dollars and you keep tapping and you keep earning more money. And then you can hire a lemonade stand manager to, to tap for you. So it taps when you're not even there. And then uh, 
So I have like 400 lemonade stands and 100 oil companies and uh, it's really mindless and dumb, but it's really enjoyable. <laughs> the numbers just keep getting bigger. Uh, cool. Javon, uh, do you have a pick? Yeah. So over the weekend, I discovered a Tlux package manager called TPM. Um, when people are writing plugins for Tmux, one of the plugins I'm using is a solarized color scheme. Um, and my music pick is a song called Pretty Pimpin, which is not about what the title says. It's an indie song from a guy from uh, Pennsylvania, Kurt Vile. I think is how you say that. That's a pretty chill song. Those are my picks. Pam, do you have a pick? I do. I don't think we picked this on the podcast yet, but it's a it's a comic uh, that's animated and is how DNS works. And the website for it is howdns.works. Uh, so it also has a nice, cool top-level domain. Uh, and it's a comic that teaches you how DNS works. And I think it's really cute. That's my pick. Nice. Uh, so my pick is another podcast. It's the Descriptive Podcast at descriptive.audio. I've been, uh, I just found out about that last week and I've been catching up on the backlog and really enjoying it. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on, Catherine. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, probably my Twitter profile, which I'm twitter.com slash KF. How did you get to KF? I we should have asked that on the podcast. I, I joined the site when I was like 13. <laughs> <laughs> I, I earned that by being an early adopter. <laughs> I was hoping you would say my friend at Twitter hooked me up. No, I no I've had the account like anyone long I know has I yeah. <laughs> anyone I know has Twitter accounts like that. Like I've met at Tiffany, who is often also you know mistaken for eighty star Tiffany, <laughs> but she's not. She's just a different Tiffany. <laughs> I've heard oh, yeah. those those like just first name uh, handles are really annoying because everybody accidentally at replies you all the time. I mean, yeah, mine is also really annoying because like I get tweets constantly that are meant for KFC, and also <laughs> that sounds great. I, actually, I can usually like tell when cricket season is like ramping up in India because there's apparently some like organization where if you text or tweet at like an account called KF Cricket, it'll send you cricket score. So I just get that constantly because people put a space before cricket. That's great. <laughs> nice. It's excellent. Cool. Uh, so show notes are at turing.cool slash 62. Follow us on Twitter at turing.cool. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.